Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Episode 22 of The Bowery Boys, Staten Island Short and Sweet. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And believe it or not, this week's episode, we are tackling an entire borough, the borough of Staten Island. How dare we, you might say. (laughs) It is pretty audacious that we're going to try to shove a short history of Staten Island into 30 minutes. But we have a good reason for trying to pull this off in one (laughs) podcast. What is that reason? Well, the reason is we're not actually doing like an exhaustive history. I mean, it would take about two hours to really do one that would do Staten Island justice. This is really some of the greatest hits of Staten Island history because it really is, once you look into it. So we should have called the Staten Island Greatest greatest Hits. hits. Exactly. It kind of is. You know, it's got such a fascinating history. You know, some of the themes that sort of run through it is the fact that, you know, its fate has always been tied to transportation to and from for the, using the ferries and boats and bridges. It's also been a very feisty and very rural population through most of its history. Sometimes on the wrong side of his on the wrong side of history, mm. as we'll see, and they've always had an uneasy alliance with kind of New York City proper, and that's the thing that kind of fascinates me and kind of why I wanted to focus on it. And stay tuned to the end of this podcast because, according to an online poll of the 100 top historical moments in Staten Island, we are going to give you the number one moment, the most important moment in Staten Island history, at the very end of this podcast. <laughs> has has there ever been a better reason to? <laughs> Stick through 25 minutes of history. Number one is coming up. Stay tuned. So, Greg, we're going to Staten Island. We're all ready for it. Mm Mm-hmm. You were just there this past weekend. I certainly so was. Maybe you can sort of give us the lay of the land a little bit. Sure. The well, you know, it's one of the five boroughs of New York City. Fifty-nine square miles. It's the third largest borough in area behind Brooklyn and Queens, but it's the least in population. It's the smallest in terms of the number of people who How live many there. People live there. I believe the population is about four hundred and seventy-seven thousand, based on the latest totals. Okay. It is the highest 
point in the American Eastern Seaboard actually lies in Staten Island at 410 feet. That's called Tote Hill. It's separated from New Jersey by the Kill Van Cull and the Arthur Kill. Kill meaning a sort of a body of a riverbed, basically, not right. a gory Nothing name. Gruesome. Yes, yeah. exactly. And of course, it's separated from the rest of New York by the New York Harbor. Duh. Staten Island itself, really quickly, is the, on the northern side, there's a lot of factories. The main centers are Port Richmond and then St. George, which is actually where the ferry terminal terminal is and is also the modern center of government. The center is, is on top of having the old Richmond town there, it also has the former location of the Fresh Kills landfill, which we'll talk about. Then, of course, the South Shore, the southernmost point of New York State, actually, has beaches and parks, and it's really the most natural area of our entire area of New York City, and very heavily suburban. The very beginnings of Staten Island, like back when the Indians, the Lenape Indians, lived there, they actually called it... Let's see if I can oh, say this on, right. Can't wait to you hear know, it. The Aquahonga Manaknong, which basically means been practicing. <laughs> I know my Lenape tongue. <laughs> um, it, which <laughs> insert joke here, <laughs> which basically means um, the high sandy banks as far as the place as the bad woods. Now that what basically means as it's a nice little sandy bank as far as the swamp area. The central part of Staten Island at the time was very swampy. That's when the Europeans arrive, I guess. So the Lenape tribe is there mm-hmm. in 1524 when our friend Giovanni de Verrazzano mm-hmm. sails his ship in, looks around the Narrows, and takes off. A little bit later in 1609, we have Henry Hudson coming over and claiming the area for the Dutch. We've covered another podcast. Uh, quite, uh, quite enough, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and setting up the Dutch trading post, of course, of New Amsterdam, New Netherlands in 1620, names it Staten Island after the Staten General, the Dutch Parliament, mm-hmm. back home. Uh, the Dutch make several attempts during those early years to settle it. It never really works, They're not very successful, it? are they? Well, first of all, getting people over there, but also th- those, those Lenape weren't really up for the Dutch. Right. Well, they were, yeah, they were still there. They were still living there, obviously. They did have a, a, a small settlement, though, right, called Ooddorp, I believe? Ooddorp, yeah, okay. meaning Old Town, right? Okay. So 1661 is the first Dutch settlement established called Old Town, and by a group of different families, Dutch, uh, Walloon, Huguenots, and the name then after New Netherlands is handed over to the English and, and becomes New York, of course, is mm-hmm. anglicized to Staten Island in 1667. So in 1670, the second governor of the sort of New York colony, whose name is, by the way, was Francis Lovelace, officially purchases, you know, from Staten Island. I did my fake quotes because, you know, whether what they got in exchange for this land is arguable. Is, Do we know what they got? It's a huge list of wampum, and it's it's not actual cash. It's just it was possessions. In, in 1683, it would actually be divided up into ten counties and renamed the county of Richmond, uh, named after Charles Lennox, who was the Duke of Richmond in England, basically the bastard son of King Charles II. So it was named after someone who was an illegitimate son of Charles well, II. Good for him. So the uh, center of government was actually in Richmond Town, which is in the center of the island, and that was based in 1729. You can actually still visit the historical Richmond Town today. It's basically the closest that New York City has to a Williamsburg, Virginia-like reenactment town with like spinning wheels and churning butter and dipping candles and, and people in costumes and everything. It's, you know, it's very cute. I've never been there. It sounds but like a 
great day trip. It, well, it is. It's only like, I think you just take a bus. It's only like 30 minutes or something from the ferry. Okay, so we have an English settlement there. It sounds like people are, are setting up houses and shops. And is there anything else we need to know about this period? Well, it's, you know, it's sparsely populated. The, a lot of the land is, is allotted to English landowners, but it's still very, very rural. Very few urban centers. You know, it's not like Manhattan. It's not like Manhattan where you have a, one huge, gigantic, thriving port. There's nothing like that, really, in Staten Island. And, you know, b- being so secluded from a lot of the unrest that's happening in the urban areas, especially, you know, we're talking about now revolutionary period. So it's a little bit separated from most of that revolutionary feeling. And so as a result, a lot of them are loyalists to the crown. Okay. So heading into the revolutionary time, the middle 18th century, tensions are rising just across the the bay in Manhattan. And how is the, what's the temperature on Staten Island? Well, basically Staten Island is a hotbed of loyalists. As a matter of fact, George Washington actually referred to the Staten Islanders as cruel and unrelenting enemies. This is from George Washington. Okay? Enemies. Correct. Well, I mean, it's it's mostly it's, it's mostly the British. So in 1776, the Declaration of Independence is signed, and the British then sweep through New York on the first cries of war. You know, first through you know Long Island, and and would eventually attack Manhattan. Well, in fact, in the summer of 1776, Captain William Howe was the commander of the British forces coming down with the British troops from from Boston, prepared to attack New York and decided to use Staten Island as a base for the attack because of its strategic location right there on and the bay. Yeah, so they ended up like thousands of British soldiers were encamped on Staten Island. And also, you know, because it's pretty friendly territory, right? I right. Mean- and there's, well, there's easy access to Brooklyn. And then from Brooklyn, they could just work their way right. around. Well, but how was actually instructed to negotiate a peace. And so on September 11th, 1776, a very interesting date, uh, he actually, there's a delegation of Americans, of the new Americans that come over, no less than Edward Rutledge, John Adams, and Ben Franklin come to Staten Island. They meet up at the house of Captain Christopher Billup. At this point, the American troops are encamped over on the New Jersey side. The British are in Staten Island. Billup himself, who was a, a little bit of a, a braggadocio, if you if you will, oh, I will, would, <laughs> would peer out from from his window with a with a spyglass, very dramatically, and like a lot of the soldiers we remember looking up and seeing him with the spyglass, looking out the American soldiers. So basically, they couldn't come to any agreement, obviously, so they were sent back. And, of course, the British famously took over Brooklyn and, and Manhattan. Yeah, so Howe was actually right then. He was presenting them with an out for the entire war. All they had to do was rescind the Declaration of Independence, and they would just have tea and call it a day. That's not what happened. So that is hardly what happened, that's yeah. The rest is history. So obviously, though, the war blazes on for many, many, many years. But it could have ended in Staten Island. Could have, but as it is, it waged in through Staten Island. As a matter of fact, the, the Battle of Staten Island was in August 25th, 1777. By the time the war ended, um, Staten Islanders, who had been like bearing the weight of all these British troops for, for so long, had actually had their fill of all these troops. I mean, they had all, and the rowdy behavior, and their farms were decimated, and and so eventually, you know, by 1783, the British escaped 
escaped to Staten Island. It was like the last place they went before getting out of there. A lot of the property belonging to the Loyalists would be sold off to others. So the British are gone. Greg, what happens next? Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, so, you know, so the beginning of the 19th century, it's, the population is it's still growing very slowly. By the end of the war, it would be 3,500 people on the whole island would be living there. By the end of the 19th century, so in this 100 years that we're about to talk about, it'll only get to 65,000 people. So it grows, but it's not this, like dramatic growth. That will mm. come later in the 20th century, by the way. So farming would still be like the main occupation during the 19th century, like chicken farming, dairy farming. Oystering is actually a big industry. A lot of shipping and a lot of naval enterprises. So it's not surprising, actually, that in 1831, a place called Sailor's Snug Harbor is built. There was a man by the name of Robert Richard Randall, mm-hmm. and he was a merchant that lived in Manhattan. When he died, he bequeathed a lot of land in Manhattan for a, a sailor's rest home, basically, or f- for a place to go. For retiring for, sailors. Yes. For, you know, they've been on the sea for decades, a place for them to go. Now, at this point, the land that he was he wanted to allot for this was basically where Washington Square Park is. That's hot real estate. So they basically rent that out, and they buy a farm in Staten Island – um, along the North Shore, and so that's where Sailor Snug Harbor was built in 1831. It is an amazing place for some really striking architecture, actually. And you can visit it today. It's incredible. I was just there last week, and yeah. it was it was fantastic. It's it's a 20 minute walk from the ferry, 10 minutes of bus ride. In 1976, they actually turned it into a cultural center and a botanic garden. So there's like art galleries there. There's there's shows. It's a children's museum. There's all sorts of things that go on, but still most. Most of it's really intact, and there's lots of really beautiful architecture. So it's the middle of the 19th century. You have the old sailors in Snug Harbor. What else is happening on the island? In 1858, the city puts a quarantine hospital on the northeast area of town uh, around Tompkinsville, where that's today. Basically, that's where they put all the immigrants that have communicable diseases. And so, naturally, the Staten Islanders are a little hostile towards this. This is something that will parallel in a few minutes about fresh kills. They're just like, we don't want this here, obviously, you know, because... Yellow fever was then hitting, and some people around in neighboring towns were starting to get it, and they thought it was from from here. So they took things into their own hands. They ran the patients from the hospital, and they burned it all down. Oh! And eventually, they built it. They built it elsewhere. So the Civil War comes along. New York City during that time is not exactly the best place to be. We have the draft riots, and those actually carry over to Staten Island as well. And the homes of many free blacks at this point were also burned down in Staten Island. So a little bit of an ugly period in Staten Island's history. However, on a brighter note, at this point, industrialization comes to Staten Island, and it drives workers there, and it drives people, and gives people a reason to go there and and build factories there. In fact, one town in Staten Island is actually called Factoryville. That's a catchy name. (laughs) 
<laughs> I want to live in Baxterville. Um, like in 1819, there was a, a very big, significant a dye plant that opened there that actually drove a lot of businesses towards Staten Island. 1854, brick manufacturer. It would sort of like peak in 1907 when Procter & Gamble would open their huge factories there. So but the- it still seems to me, pardon me for interrupting, yes. but it seems like it would be kind of hard to do business on an island. I mean, at the time, you're talking 1850s, 1900, 1907. How are you going to get the workers out there? How do you get people back and forth? I know that there were some kind of boat services well, that were this point, at, as, 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 at this point, transportation booms, and we get the sort of the birth of the prototype to the Staten Island Ferry. Because before the ferry launched, we had individual boatmen who were ferrying people back and forth mm-hmm. between Manhattan and also Brooklyn and right. Staten Island. You didn't have many people living on the island. So it it just I guess the the population was growing and there became a a bigger need for something larger a real service a real actual motorized boats and that would happen I guess in 1817 to rewind Richmond Turnpike Company started operating the Nautilus which was mm-hmm. the first steam powered ferry to go back and forth uh, the commander of the boat was Captain John DeForest who was the brother in law. Of the young Cornelius Vanderbilts. Oh, the Vanderbilts family. We finally yeah, come we across just, them. I know. We got to deal with the Astors last week or two <laughs> weeks. Was that just last week? Yes. Yeah, so now we're up to some oh more mil- multimillionaires here, the Vanderbilt family. But at this time, I mean, young Cornelius would go on in the next years to make a fortune ferrying people around all over New York. And, and he's up from and down Staten the- Island, even. Right. Yes. Okay. He's a local. So young Cornelius actually would go ahead and buy control of the Nautilus in 1838, and he would run it until the Civil War. So then in 1860, the Staten Island Railroad was built, which went into the heart of Staten Island and was able to better transport people up to the ferry. So it actually merged with the ferry system. And it, you know, and all of this is just creating more need for more transportation because there's more and more people and you're able to go to places, live further out from the factories. There but, were a couple misfires, right? if I may. Yes. I, we had, there were a couple big accidents that happened. The Westfield disaster on July 30th, 1871, left 85 passengers dead. So disaster would strike 30 years later again with the Northfield, which was a ferry that was hit by a Jersey Central. Central Ferry. It sank on June 14th, 1901. Now, the city had consolidated in 1898, New York City. At this this time then, and think it came at the nick of time, Staten Island would consolidate into New York City proper in 1898. And so now it was finally able to join in to a lot of the same services that New York City people would get and would be and governed I, of the same manner. And I think that they were looking for a reason to take on certain services, and the Northfield gave them this reason. This disaster mm-hmm. gave the city a reason to say, you know what, we're going to run this ferry service. Uh, they would take over the, the service in between Manhattan and Staten Island. They would bring in five new ferries, one named for each of the boroughs, and they would run it until now. Another kind of residual thing that would happen is that the center of government in Staten Island, which was in Richmond, in this, you know, in the center of Staten Island, would move up to St. George, which is, you know, where the, st- where the ferry is. And as a matter of fact, the main borough hall that's there is the sort of center of government was built in 1980. 
1906 and was built by our friends Career and Hastings, who built the New York Public Library. So they built this also a couple years before that. Now that they're New York is together with Staten Island, almost as the moment from they came together, it seems like they kind of wanted to split apart. Mm. So one of the contentions here in the 20th century is a place called Fresh Kills. Fresh Kills is 2,200 acres of garbage. Beautiful. Oh. <laughs> it was, thankfully was, the largest landfill in the world. It could be seen from space, and it was, at the time, the largest man-made thing in the world. I mean, just imagine that in the middle of Staten Island. In fact, 20 barges arrived daily since its opening in 1948, uh-huh. filled the capacity with trash, and dumped it on top of the heap, building this just massive monument to human waste, I guess. <laughs> it was at one point as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Ugh. If, it, and if, if it was still open, like had it still been open, it would be the highest point on the East Coast by now. It's just, just, just disgusting. But let's focus on the fact that it's not it's open not there. anymore. Well, so, uh, Why like, isn't it open? Why did we close it? Well, like the quarantine hospital uh, that we mentioned earlier, Staten Island people just did not want it. As a matter of fact, which I'll mention in a minute, they almost seceded from the city because of this very thing. So they fought it for 50 years. It had been open for about 50 years. But with the help of the Environmental Protection Agency, it was finally closed in May 22nd, 2001. However... That's back when we had an environmental protection agency. <laughs> yeah, remember that? But actually, it, that wasn't the end of, of uh, Fresh Kills because it would be reopened more ominously on September 11th because it did contain all the debris from the Twin Towers. I mean, just imagine that for a long time it was commandeered by the federal government because it was a crime scene and it was evidence. Now it is more happily in the process of becoming a public park and they're trying to figure out, I, I guess they're having competitions to and I figure love, out the best way to convert it. And I love the idea that it's going, to be a, it's going to be three times the size of Central Park. I mean, that's going to be enormous. Clearly, this has, was a huge, has been one of the big contentions in Staten Island history. And there's also during the 20th century this sort of like undertone of wanting to actually secede from New York City. Like I said, the first cry was in 1947. Uh, It came back again in 1989, and actually the New York state government actually approved a measure to investigate the possibility of Staten Island seceding. In 1993, Staten Island voted overwhelmingly two to one to secede. So they're all ready to do it, basically. Mm. However, there was a lot of government stalling at that point. And then here comes swoops in Rudy Giuliani. And one of his platforms was that he would address the two pressing issues uh, the Staten Islanders had. And one of them was the elimination of fresh kills, which did get eliminated. And the other one was to make the Staten Island ferry free. Because for the, since its inception, you always had to pay. You had to pay a nickel for the longest time. Then in the 70s, you had to pay a quarter. And then in the 90s, you had to pay 50 cents. But, I mean, their argument's valid. Like, you can't really go to New York in any other way except for one that we're about to, we're about to spoil for you. <laughs> so, it's now free. So It was made free in 1997 by Rudy. I remember the old mm-hmm. days. You had to get a special yep. token or something. Or, and it was kind of confusing because it wasn't the same price as the subway. So it was it completely was, different. It right. was this kind of wacky, wacky fee. So there's still there's still secession talk, but it's not these two basic bones of contention have been removed. Just another note about the ferry, if I might. It's it takes 25 minutes to make the trip either way, 
And if you want to do a round trip, because you can for free, you do actually have to get off the ferry. Did you know this? Oh, yeah, you have to get off and back on. Yeah, you, you can't just, can't just sit on it. Right. on it because, you know, you could just live on the ferry, I guess. <laughs> but no, they make you actually get off, sure. go around a thing, and then come back on. Uh, so that's free. They eliminated cars on the ferry after mm-hmm. 9-11. Beforehand, it was $3 to get a car over, but you can take a bicycle. But if you're on rollerblades, you have to take them off for the duration of the um, Oh, I didn't know that. Run. And, you know, and you have a great view on the way there of, sta- of uh, the Statue of Liberty and Governor's Island and all the various bridges in New Jersey. It's all there, <laughs> and it's free. It's a great... But it's not the only way to get to Staten Island, and now we're... You can swim. You can swim there. And you can... Well, there's three bridges connecting it to New Jersey, but, and this is so hard for me to believe, there's, there was only a bridge connecting Staten Island to New York City only... In the 1960s. Now, you remember what I said earlier about the number one most important historical moment? Oh, right. Yeah, I've just been waiting with bated well, breath. Well, in a, an online poll of the 100 most significant Staten Island historical moments, ranked number one. and <laughs> Which is, by the way, a poll that I'm sure everybody saw. <laughs> We'll put a link on the website. Um, uh, Staten Islanders consider the building of the Verrazano Narrows Bridge the most important. And it really, I mean, it really is. It, it, it bridged the, the Narrows, if you obviously, will. Uh, the water between Brooklyn and Staten <laughs> Island. Um, the bridge was, the upper deck was completed in 1964, the lower deck in 1969, obviously named after the explorer who first, first sailed through the Narrows. Giovanni. And was actually for a long time the largest suspension bridge in the world until 1981. This was, I hate to mention his name, but this was one of the last public works that was commissioned by Robert Moses and was designed by a man named Othmar Amon, who we'll be mentioning in some future podcasts because he's basically the man you go to for bridges in New York City. He's built about four other ones, actually, including the George Washington George Bridge. Washington, the impact of connecting vehicles to Brooklyn you know, of just having this, like, a way to get vehicles to and from and having, without using a ferry, without using boats, and without going through New Jersey, uh, you know, it can't be underestimated. No, it led to an explosion in sort of suburban growth and middle-class housing inside Staten Island. Basically, industry and population have boomed since the 60s and since this has happened. And and actually, and there's just sort of a like a almost like a spiritual, psychological element of just finally... Being connected to your city. It's connected to everything. And you can now, you know, you can drive from the Bronx all the way to Staten Island. You can drive through all five boroughs if one had the time to do so in a car. And we plan to try it. (laughs) But anyway, you know, and Staten Island continues to grow, and it's it, it it's got a really charming, still a uh, like a, almost in some areas very rural character, but a very different than a lot of the other parts of New York City. So for those people who live out there, um, I, I hope he gave you a little bit of a a brief little you know, point by point history for those who don't live there and haven't been there even. If that's you, don't just get off the ferry, turn around, and come back. <laughs> get off the ferry and take a walk, either to Snug Harbor or catch a bus. And, and go to many other places. You can visit the house where John Adams and Ben Franklin met with Colonel Howe. You can go to historic Richmond Town. You can go down to the South Beach. You could check out Fresh Kills. And you can even check out the former landfill, if you'd like. Well, 
Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, as always, check our blog. Uh, we update it daily. That is BoweryBoysPodcast.com. And you can email us suggestions, comments, rebuttals, anything else on your mind. All sorts of things. Our emails are on the website, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. We thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.